chapter 37 of Ezekiel. And, and finally, after this, you know, long uh, book, especially Jeremiah included this massive book, the longest book in the Bible, going all the way back to the book of Jeremiah. And now in the book of Ezekiel, we've seen prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of doom. God is going to be against you. I will make sure that you know that my name is uh, the Lord. All the various nations that surround Israel from chapter 27 all the way up to chapter 36 are all included in these dire prophetic uh, verses that we've been seeing as we've been walking through. And finally, now in chapter 37, we have hope. Uh, we have good news that's going to be happening I love the first five verses here of Ezekiel chapter 37. It says, The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. And he led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor, and they were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. And then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied. You alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you. And make you live again. And so, Father, thank you so much for your breath. Thank you so much for your life. Thank you so much for your spirit. Lord, as we read this majestic chapter that is not only applicable to the Israelites at the time of the writing, but also to us today. Uh, even to Gentiles, Lord. And Lord, I, I thank you so much for your word that is so um, specific, so detailed in the way that these bones will come to life. And how you're doing an even more impossible task by giving life to people that were your enemies. Giving life to people that have rejected you. Giving life to people that are indebted in their sin and you breathe new life into them and make them a new creation. Even more impossible than making dry bones come to life. You renew the spirit of dead people. And so Laura, I thank you so much that you've given us salvation. This hope that we have that can only be found in you. And I thank you so much for these that are, that are here that know you personally, that this message speaks and hopefully uh, even revives us in such a way that we remember what you've done for us and it rejuvenates us and helps us to make it through an, another day or another week or another uh, month, Lord. You would help us to keep coming back to this chapter and seeing you work mightily. So, Lord, I thank you for your word, even the book of Ezekiel, which at times is, is very, very hard to understand, but yet it is so true for even today. And so, Lord, I ask you, bless this reading. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week, I mean, we ended with this 
this paragraph here and we got to take communion together. The, the privilege of not only being able to hold uh, the bread, but also the cup and the, the new covenant in his blood from which we have uh, new life. But then 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon those people that are gathered in that upper room, the 120 that were gathered uh, there. And these fires, these flames of fire are on their head and, and literally this wind rushes through the upper room. The Holy Spirit now inhabits people as a, as a seal. The, the truth that we know that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. In the Old Testament... We see this word, and we see it in the very first verse. We're going to see it multiple times throughout. In fact, in this chapter alone, we're going to see this word nine times. The most times you ever see this word in the entire Bible, if you look at this chapter. Out of all the chapters in the entire Bible, this word is used more times in this chapter. It's the word ruah, or breath, or spirit. In fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 7, we read this. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he uh, ruad, the ruah of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Out of all of creation, the only one that God touches, that forms with his own hands and breathes his life into, Ruah. And now he's going to do it again in chapter 37. Not, not a, a clay model, but literally dead, dry bones that have been bleached by the sun that don't even have a single piece of flesh on them, God is going to bring to life. In fact, that's what we see when we get to chapter 37. The Lord took hold of me and I was carried away by the Ruah of the Lord or, or the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. These aren't skeletons. These are bones that have been scattered randomly all over the place. Skull here, tibia here, a femur here, all these different types of bones. N not joined together, no ligaments, no meat, no flesh, just dry, dead, bleached bones scattered everywhere. It's it even more powerful in verse 3. Then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? Wow. I don't know if you had a skeleton in your biology in junior high or high school or if you went to med school or whatever it was. You knew that that skeleton, skeleton could never come to life, right? You knew that, right? Unless you were, you know, had nightmares or something like that, you know, some people do. But, but you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that uh, skeleton could never come to life. 
And that was a group of bones that were tied together with wire. That were tied together to form the skeleton. There was no way even those bones together could even hold themselves together, right? And the same thing with these bones. These are scattered bones throughout this valley that have been sitting bleached in the sun, white and dry. No amount of flesh on them. And Ezekiel, of course, in his, um, and I love this, you know, making sure that he relies upon the sovereignty of God. Him, he himself being a priest, having served God now for about 12 years, having to deal with the people in Babylon that are now 900 miles away. The temple has been destroyed. The spirit of God has already left uh, the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is about ready to collapse underneath the siege of Babylon itself. No hope for the people. No land to go back to. And what is God going to show Ezekiel? I'm going to bring this dead people back to life. I'm going to bring these dead, dry bones back to life. Ezekiel answers, O sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. And by the way, we need to answer God more like that as well. So many times we like to argue with God, oh, that's impossible. There's no way you can do that, God. But can God always do the impossible? Yes. And by the way, this is going to be simple compared to spiritual revival. This is going to be easy compared to spiritual revival. Verse 4, it says, Then he said to me, Speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, Dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put Ruah into you. Make you live again three times in five verses so far. We see this word Ruah. Again, we're going to see this word nine times in 14 verses, more times in this one chapter than anywhere else in the entire Bible. We, we get to see life being breathed into dead things. We get to see life being breathed into dry uh, bones. In fact, in the New Testament, we see the same uh, uh, same example, if you will, in John chapter 20, verse 19. And I, I know all of you have read this before. Then Sunday evening, the disciples were met, were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Remember, Jesus had died. He had risen from the dead and he, you know, had told the, the disciples to wait for him. They're waiting behind closed doors because of fear of uh, the Roman soldiers. They're meeting behind these, soul, these uh, doors. And what does Jesus do? He suddenly appears among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed. 
And the, the only time that we see uh, God incarnate, God in the scriptures, breathing on the men, breathing on those apostles. The same example all the way back in Genesis with God breathing into Adam himself. The breath of life. This is even more important because this is spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is being breathed through Jesus Christ into these terrified apostles. Look at what Jesus says. Then he breathed on them and said, and I love this, receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. How many times do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? The, the, the breath of God, the power of God. Not only to make dry, dead bones come to life, but also make spiritually dead people alive. An even more impossible task, by the way. Verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not uh, forgiven the privilege that we have to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our sins have been forgiven by who? And only because of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 6, it continues on there. I will put flesh and muscle on you and cover you with skin. I will put ruah into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This phrase that is used more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the entire Bible. So that they will know that I am the Lord. And now it's no longer to the surrounding nations. Now it's no longer to the people in captivity in Babylon. Now it's no longer to the nation of Israel all the way back in Jerusalem. Now it's to a bunch of dead dry bones. So, so the world will know that I am the Lord. Can God do the impossible? Yes, he can. So Ezekiel gets to prophesy. And remember all the prophecies that Ezekiel has been giving over the last, you know, 12 years of his life from the age of 30 all the way up to age of, of 42. Remember he had to lay on his left side, then he had to lay on his right side. He had to eat bread over dung. He had to make this, you know, literally this, this model of the city of Jerusalem. He had to dig through the wall pretending to escape out of uh, Jerusalem. He had, he had to literally be the prophetic vision for what was happening 900 miles away in uh, Jerusalem itself. He saw the Spirit of God leave the temple. He saw all those priests that were worshiping the sun, putting idols in the holy place. And now he gets to give this prophecy. It's the first good prophecy that he gets to give, by the way. It's the first prophecy of hope that we see in the book of, of Ezekiel. What does he get to do? So I spoke this message just as he told me these bones are going to come to life. The Ruah of God is going to come into these bones. Suddenly, as I spoke, there was a rattling noise across all the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. This is how you know they're all scattered, right? 
First, they have to be gathered together into individual skeletons. That's the very first thing that has to happen. I don't know if you guys remember the song, dry bones, dry bones, dry bones, you know. I, I don't remember the rest. Of the, I just remember that part of the song, dry bones. All these bones are coming together, right? Why? Because you have to have a skeleton, all these parts of the bodies of these bones have to come together in perfect order, designed by God, by the way. All the fingers and the toes have to attach to the very... And by the way, I mean, 216 bones, I think it is. All these bones come together. All, all the little bones in the wrists, all the bones in the fingers, all the bones on the chest cavity and, and the femur and all the different parts of the bones have to come together before flesh can even start to form, by the way. All the bones that have been randomly scattered throughout this valley have to come together first into individual skeletons. I love the description. I love the detail in the book of Ezekiel. Then as I watched, and imagine this, okay? Imagine this. Bones coming together, forming skeletons, and then the bones watched as muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then skin formed to cover their bodies. But they still had no ruah in them. They're just cadavers. They're just bodies standing. What is needed to make them alive? Just like a dead body that's just laying there. Just like all the way back in the book of Genesis that we just read in chapter 2, Adam was just a clay statue until God breathed life into him. And the same thing with this army, this army of bodies. Verse 9. By the way, this verse contains Ruah, more times than any other verse in the entire Bible. It contains it three times. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the Ruah or the winds. Son of man, speak a prophetic message and say this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O Ruah, from the four winds, Ruah, into these dead bodies so they may live again. Just like in Genesis 2, when God breathes life into Adam. Just like in John chapter 20, when Jesus breathes life into the apostles. What is happening to these statues that are just flesh and blood and muscle and bones? What has to happen to make them alive? The breath of God. The breath of God comes into this army, into this mass of people and breathes life into the... Again, verse 10. So I spoke the message as he commanded me and Bruah came into their bodies. They all came to life and they stood up on their feet a great army. Wow. By the way, if you haven't been here for the previous parts of the book of Ezekiel, 
the first 36 chapters are there on purpose. You can't just start with chapter 37. You can't just start with 38 or 39. You can't just start with chapter 40. A, lo a lot of, you know, whether it's prophecies or, or people that talk about various prophecies, in order to understand these chapters, you have to you know, have read the previous 36 chapters. Because we're going to see in the next, especially in the next chapter, all those nations that are going to rise up against this army, by the way. And those are going to come from the previous chapters that we read, starting all the way back in chapter 27. Meshach and Tubal, they were mentioned in chapter 27. They, they were mentioned in the other nations that were in the rest of the prophetic book. Why is this army dead in the first place? Because they rejected the breath of God. They rejected the prophecies of God. And God had to judge them. But is God in his grace and mercy going to revive them again? As, as the book of Ezekiel uh, tells us. As the book of Jeremiah tells us. As the book of Isaiah tells us, is God still going to come to Israel? Will he breathe life into them, the Spirit of God? By the way, it says there at the end of that phrase, a great army that's there on purpose. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. Thank God that there's an explanation. Okay, thank God, okay? Because we could be guessing till you know the Lord returns. We can be guessing, guessing, guessing. And a lot of these prophecies, thank God, you know, the book of Ezekiel explains it to us. But what is this valley of dry bones that have come to life to form a living, breathing army? Who do they represent? The nation of Israel. Okay? Very, very simple. They are saying we have become old. Dry bones, all hope is gone. Our nation is finished. And you remember last week we talked about this, how many millions, literally millions and millions of people came out all the way back in the book of Exodus from the land of Egypt. I mean, literally there was over 6 million Jews coming out of the nation of Egypt. And now when they go into captivity into the land of Babylon, they're literally down to the hundreds. The remnant, truly the remnant. And what is God going to do with this remnant that's dead and dry and have no hope whatsoever? Will God revive them? Will God bring them back to life? In fact, Going back to the land 70 years uh, later. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Who's the only one that has revived the nation of Israel? Not just once, but many, 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 many times. Who has always been faithful to the nation of Israel despite their unfaithfulness. And it's easy to look at Israel and say... God's been faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness. But has God been the same to us? Has God been faithful to us despite the fact that we can be unfaithful to him? Thank God. So I spoke the message as he commanded me. And Ruah came into their bodies. They all came to life. 
They stood on their feet, a great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They're saying, we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you remember when we were in the book of Jeremiah, it was prophetically announced by Jeremiah, despite all the mockings, despite all the people that said, no, that can never happen. Seventy years, they're going to come back to the land. But of course, not just at this time, not just when Ezra and Nehemiah come back to the land, but will they also come back to the land in May 14th, 1948 as well? Will they come back to the land as we're going to see in chapter 40 during the millennial kingdom as well? Will God bring them back to the land? In fact, when we get to chapter 40, we're going to see that they're finally going to inhabit the entire land of Israel for the very first time. The land of Israel all the way from the nation of Egypt all the way up to uh, Syria from the, uh, the border of, of the uh, uh, Mediterranean Ocean all the way to the Jordan River for the first time in Israel's history finally being able to inhabit the entire land. And it's only in this book, by the way, that we get to see the exact boundaries. It's only in these chapters that we get to see the breath of God being put into a dead, dry, hopeless people. And what's the purpose, by the way? It says it there in verse 13. As is every single prophetic word that comes in the book of Ezekiel, what is the ending purpose of every single prophecy? Why are, is every single one of these prophecies given? So that they will know the Lord. It's always for his glory. Whether it's a, a prophecy that is causing discipline and punishment and judgment, or whether it's a prophecy of hope, it's always meant to point glory to God. Every single time. When this happens, my people, you will know that I am the Yahweh or the name of God. You will know me. How, what's the only way that we can know the Lord? With his breath. You have to have a personal relationship with him, right? They're going to have a personal relationship with God. Verse 14, I will put my ruah, the last time we see it in this chapter, my spirit in you. Wow. That They get this Holy Spirit. And remember, we saw the Holy Spirit leave. We saw the Holy Spirit leave the temple. We saw the Holy Spirit leave the city of Jerusalem. And now God is going to give them back the Spirit. Capital S. And you will live again and return to your own land. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has Spoken. Wow. Does God keep his promises? Yes, he does. This next section kind of 
maybe hard for us to understand unless we, we kind of know a little bit of the history uh, of Israel, but it's just as important, just as prophetic, because not only is it going to go back to that valley of dry bones, because this time, as, as you know, you know, the nation of Israel is split. The nation of Israel has been divided. The nation of Israel has been conquered multiple times. The northern kingdom first, all the way back in 722 B.C. And now the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 is defeated as well by a, a different nation that defeated the nation that captured the northern kingdom of Israel. And now for the first time since King Solomon, something amazing is going to happen. It says it there in verse 15. Again, a message came to me from Yahweh. Son of man, take a piece of wood, carve on it these words. This represents Judah and its allied tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then take another piece and carve these words on it. This represents Ephraim and the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes. Ephraim from which all the northern kings came from, the son of Joseph. Okay? We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Now hold them together in your hand as they were one piece of wood. And when your people ask you what your actions mean, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take Ephraim and the northern tribes and join them to Judah. This has never occurred since the time when Solomon died. And since that time, there's been a divided nation. And now when they come back to the land, they're going to come back as a united 12-tribe nation. I mean, this is, again, impossible. Because not only had they been, you know, fighting against each other, not only was there animosity amongst the tribes, but even there was different kings. All the kings from Judah descending from the line of David, Judah itself, and the northern tribes descending from the line of Ephraim. And when your people ask you what your actions mean, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take Ephraim and the northern tribes and join them to Judah. I will make them one piece of wood in my hand. Who's going to be joining the tribes back together? For the first time since King Solomon's death, God will. In fact, I, I know this is, you know, uh, unless, unless you've studied the Old Testament or, or read the, you know, the kings or, or the, the various parts of the Old Testament, we'll see a lot more when we get to the minor prophets. We'll be able to get a little bit more into detail here. But, but the division goes all the way back to the death of King Solomon. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 12, we read this. And this is King Rehoboam. He's the son of uh, Solomon. So the king paid no attention to the people. Remember, King Solomon has died. And, 
And Rehoboam asked his counselors, what should we do? You know, the older guys say, you need to be less harsh. You need to be nicer to the people. You need to be nicer than what your dad was to the people. And then he asked his friends, those that were his own age, what should I do? And they said, your dad whipped him with whips. You should whip him with scorpions. You should treat them harsher. You should tax them more. And that's who Rehoboam listened to. And because of that, Ten tribes leave. They literally walk away. Uh, led underneath this guy by the name of uh, Jeroboam. In fact, that's exactly what it says there in the rest of this verse. This turn of events was the will of God for it fulfilled the Lord's message to Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And he's from the tribe of Ephraim, which, by the way, was the youngest son of Joseph. You guys remember Joseph, right? Jo Joseph had two sons. Remember when Jacob tried to bless them? What did he do? He flipped his arms, right? He, he, he put the, his right arm on the head of the younger son, Ephraim, and he put his left hand on the older son, Manasseh. In fact, you'll never see a tribe of Joseph in the Old Testament. It's always his two sons, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. Why is that? Because he got the double blessing. He got two portions. It's his sons that became the tribes. Not Joseph. It was his sons. And because of the blessing going to the younger son Ephraim, his descendants now become the kings, Jeroboam being the first of them that are going to reign in the northern kingdom of Israel in the town of or the capital of Samaria. Wow. We'll talk about that more later. I know you guys, you know, uh, hopefully just give you a, a, a little taste of that. Verse 16 of 1 Kings chapter 12 we see the division occurring. And when all Israel realized that the king, King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, had refused to listen to them, they responded, down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out to your own house, O David. And ten tribes leave. Ten tribes leave. They go back to their homes, no longer to be ruled by the lineage of David. Now choosing instead to be ruled by Ephraim, Jeroboam, and his descendants. So the people of Israel returned home, but Rehoboam continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the towns of uh, Judah. By the way, there's one other tribe that stays with them. It's the tribe of Benjamin just because of alliances. The understanding is here, there was only 60 years when the nation of Israel was united under a monarchy. 40 of those years was David, or excuse me, 40 of those years was Solomon, and 20 of those years was David. That was it. All the rest of the monarchy, all the rest of the kings, it was always a divided nation. In fact, if we read the rest of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles goes back and forth, back and forth between the two nations. First you have the northern kingdom of Israel, then you go to the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's very, very confusing, you know, unless you have a chart or something like that. 
right? It's always divided, and that, and that always causes confusion. And now, for the first time since King Solomon's death, there's going to be a united nation. And who's going to bring them together? Who's going to bring them together? God. And God will cause this nation of dry bones to come back to life. And the people of Israel will be united. And by the way, that's going to be the segue into chapter 40. They're going to be united under a single king too. Verse 20, then hold out the pieces of wood you have inscribed so the people can see them. This is back in chapter 37 here. And give them this message from the sovereign Lord, this united nation, all 12 tribes for the first time united. I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them home to their own land from the places where they have been scattered. I will unify them, all 12 tribes, all these opposing viewpoints, all these people that have come from various nations, some of them coming back as half-breeds, by the way, no, no longer full-blooded Jews, no longer uh, having you know, a pure blood in them, but being a mixed race, Samaritans, people that are coming back to the land as partially Jewish, partially some other nationality. I will unify them into one nation on the mountains of Israel. One king will rule them all. Who is that? From the lineage of David, the Messiah. One king will rule them all. No longer will they be divided into two nations or into two kingdoms. And they will never again pollute themselves with their idols and vile images and rebellion. For I will save them from their sinful apostasy. I will cleanse them. What happens when the Spirit of God enters into a people? A nation. He cleanses them. So much so that they will no longer desire to have idolatry. So, so much so that they will no longer want to worship foreign gods. By the way, has this fulfilled been fulfilled yet? When they, when they came back under Ezra and Nehemiah, did they still go back to other idols? Yes, they did. When they came back in 1948, May 14, 1940, did they have other idols or do they have idols today? Yes. This is looking forward to, and we're going to see it when we get to chapter 40. There's always a order to the Bible. There's always an order. Even in the book of Ezekiel, we see this order starting in chapter 37 here. When God brings them back, what will he do with his people? He's going to cleanse them. He's going to make them new, make them whole by his ruah, by his spirit. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. Verse 24, my servant David will be their king and they will have only one shepherd. They will obey my regulations and be careful to keep my uh, decrees. Does this mean he's going to raise up David again? David going to come back to life? No, we understand this, right? 
It means the descendant of David, the Messiah, is going to be the one that rules over them. We'll see this when we get to the millennial kingdom. And they will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob, the land where their ancestors lived. They and their children and their grandchildren after them will live there forever, generation after generation. And my servant David will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give them their land and increase their numbers. And I will put my... Who gets to prophesy about this, by the way? The priest without a temple gets to prophesy about this. Ezekiel, who, by the way, never got to serve in the temple that is destroyed at the time of this writing. He gets to prophesy about a new temple. He gets to prophesy about a, a greater temple. And I will put my temple among them forever. I will make my home among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The Spirit of God is going to return to the temple. Inhabit the temple of God again. By, by, by the way, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, put yourself in the midst of these people. They're living on the river Kibar in a foreign land 900 miles away from their destroyed homeland. And try to put yourself in, in this, literally this hopeless situation and being told that you're going to get to go back to the land and there's going to be a new temple. I'm going to breathe life into this nation again. And by the way, I'm going to make your numbers increase dramatically. You'll no longer just be a, a little remnant of people. But I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to put the temple in your midst again. And I'm going to put the Spirit of God in the midst of that temple. Verse 28. And when my temple is among them forever... The nations will know that I am the Lord who makes Israel holy. Wow. Why is God doing this to Israel? Is it just for Israel's sake? No. It's for his glory. For God's glory. Everything that God does here is always for his glory. He chooses the most unlikely of nations. He chooses a nation that he knows will reject him. He chooses a nation that he knows will be unfaithful to him. He chooses a nation that is stiff-necked and hard-hearted and will always be rejecting of God. He will discipline this nation and he will love them consistently and faithfully and it will be him that brings them back because he will get all the glory. By the way, that's exactly what he does with us. Who does he choose? Who does he put his spirit in? The most unlikely of people. The ones that aren't the, you know, the best. He puts his spirit in those that have the privilege of knowing him personally. I love 28. And when my temple is among them forever... The nations will know that I am the Lord. 
The nation of Israel will go back all the way to the promises that God had given to Abraham himself. I will make you a blessing to the nations. I will bless the nations through you. And your descendants, Israel. And who is it that's going to make Israel holy? Who's the only one that can do that, by the way? God. God. Israel was playing with all the other idols. They were going after chasing all the other nations. And who's the only one that can make them holy? God. Same thing with us too, by the way, right? Who's the only one that makes us holy? It's God. We'll be able to start this next chapter here, chapter 38. And by the, by the way, the, the, the next two chapters have to be read together. The next two chapters are not meant to be read separately the next two chapters depend upon the previous uh, nine chapters that we read, starting with chapter 27 all the way up to chapter 35. They are tied with those previous chapters, okay? So when you read these chapters, uh, just make sure that, you know, you don't just, um, you know, whether it's a commentary or maybe someone you hear on the internet or something like that, make, make sure that when you read it, you always read it in context, okay? It's very, very important, especially this first part here. Chapter 38, verse 1. I'm going to read the first six verses, and then we'll talk about it. It says, this is another message that came to me from the Lord. Okay, so now this is separate from chapter 37. Chapter 37 is for, and we see this, the nation of Israel, right? We'll see that these nations that rise up are going to be against Israel, that, that the central point of this war is going to be against Israel. But the nations that are mentioned here are the surrounding nations. It says in verse 1, This is another message that came to me from the Lord. Son of man, turn and face Gog in the land of Magog, the prince who rules over the nations of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Gog, I am your... What does it say there? I am your enemy, right? In fact, this is totally the opposite of the previous verse or the previous chapter where, where God is bringing the spirit of God into the nation of Israel. What is God saying to Gog and Magog? I am your enemy. And see, the, the guys in the back, they're making sure you have Bibles. That's why, you know. Verse 4, I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with your whole army, your horses and charioteers in full armor and a great horde armed with shields and swords, Persia, Ethiopia and Libya will join you too with all their weapons. Gomer and all its armies will also join you along with the armies of Beth, Tog, Armah from the distant north and many others. And you say, I have no idea where these nations are. I have no idea what these people are, right? Yeah, of course. In, in, in fact, we, we got to see a couple of these nations that are only mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, by the way. 
In fact, we got to see Meshach and Tubal all the way back in chapter 27, the very first of the chapters where God is prophetically speaking against the surrounding nations, okay? Chapter 27, chapter 32, chapter 38, chapter 39 all mention Meshach and Tubal, okay? And again, where are these places? It's just like telling someone where Arvin is or Tehachapi. Or, 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 you know, someplace around here in Bakersfield, right? You know, you describe it to someone from another state or, or a, another country, and they have no clue where those people, places are, right? You know where they are because you live here. It's the same thing with the people that are living at this time. They, they know where these places, I mean, it's, it's in uh, the Middle East. In fact, I have a, a map here for you guys. <clears throat> these are the surrounding nations of Israel. You see the big one up at the top, right-hand corner, Magog? And then you, take, then you have Gomer, and then you have Meshach and Tubal. You have that great name that I love, Togarma. Togarma. And then you have Persia, and then the other nations there, Cush, Libya, and, and Foot, or, or, or the, the Persian area. You understand that these nations that were existing at this time, the places, that those places still exist today, right? We, we just have different maps, right? We're going to see the different maps next week. But that Magog up there, that, that, that's literally the area that, that if you draw a, a line uh, north of Israel, that would be, you know, modern-day Russia. The, by the way, this prophecy we see again all the way up in Revelation chapter 20. Now, this prophecy is before the millennial kingdom in the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, it's after the millennial kingdom. We're, we're going to see more about the millennial kingdom and this battle that takes place in the book of Ezekiel than in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation only has one verse. One verse on the millennial kingdom. That's it. That's, that's all that there is. In, in the book of Ezekiel, we see nine chapters. Great detail, even down to the measurements of the temple and the walls and the dividing of the land. In these next two chapters, and I encourage you, read ahead, please. Chapter 38 and 39, we see a great detail of this battle that's going to take place. Gog and Magog. In this valley that's going to occur in Israel, Armageddon. And, and hopefully as you read it, I, I encourage you, put away the commentaries, put away, put away the, you know, and, and it's so easy um, to get influenced by whether it's a, a person or a point of view. But just read it from the Bible first, please. Just read it from the Bible. Read these two chapters. Just, just read them. Just read them for yourself. Go, go to chapter 20 of, Re of Revelation and read it also. Just read it, okay? 
And hopefully when we come back next week, we'll be able to dive a little bit more in, into this. But the privilege as we go through the book of Ezekiel, is the book of Ezekiel applicable for your life right now today? Yes. Did, did, did God breathe life into you? Does God give us the Holy Spirit? Yes, he does. And thank God, by the way, because you are an impossible work. Did you know? And that, that you know, yeah, you know, it's not a compliment. E even more impossible than a pile of dead bones. Because what did God have to do for us? He sent his son to die on the cross. To pay for our sins that we could never pay for. And he made us alive. He made us new. He, he made us in his image to be his people. So that we could be a blessing to those around us. So that we could be his witnesses. Because just like with Israel in the future. Just like with Israel during this time. They are going to be a blessing to the nation. They're going to be witnesses of God's holiness in a land that has been devastated. And God does the same thing with us. A devastated person, God revives. A dead person, God revives. He gives us life for his glory. So that we would be a witness to those around us. So thank you for coming tonight, Lord. I ask that you bless these, my friends, my family. Those that are here, those that are watching. It's so easy to get up or get caught up in all the, um, the, the conflict that we have, especially after yesterday with, with voting. And thank God we have the privilege of voting. But thank God all those ads have ended. Thank God that we have the privilege of, of, of knowing that your word is still applicable today. Just as it was yesterday, just as it was the day before. Just as it was, you know, 2,700 years ago when th these verses were written. That, that even today you are changing dead lives and giving them new life. Raising dry bones to life, Lord. Even people that aren't uh, the nation of Israel, you are doing that too. And so, Lord, I ask that you would take these verses to heart and make us holy. Unite us. Help us to see you working, especially as a, as a body of Christ, as a, a church, Lord. And so I do, I, I bless these, my friends. My family here tonight, Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to open up your word in our language in multiple different versions, by the way, and be able to read it for ourselves. We are truly blessed to have that. Lord, help us to tune out all that noise that can so many times confuse us from the real message. That you are a God that will deserve all holiness all glory and everything that happens in your word always points glory to you and you alone and even our lives today the transforming power of your holy spirit 
always points glory back to you. So Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you.